Hello, and welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buda. We are back a week early with The Keys to December, a short story by Roger Zelazny. Uh, this story was originally published in the magazine New Worlds in the year of 1966. Well, we've gone ahead and read it in this comprehensive collection of Zelazny's short fiction that's been published by the New England Science Fiction Association Press in six hardcover volumes. These are absolutely gorgeous volumes. I mean, they're extremely well made they are never going to fall apart uh, and they're they're beautiful to look at uh, i i'm i'm looking at these really with envy gene wolf is going to need a collection like this someday so tor if you're listening please get on that <laughs> but this story that we read here the keys to december this story is in volume two which is called power and light and it is a fairly big story it's technically a novelette so we are going to take two episodes to cover it though we will release the separate discussion episode just later this same week it'll be two or three days from now and the reason that we are back a week early is that one of our patreon supporters has commissioned this extra episode for everyone we're very grateful for the commission, and we hope you, the other listeners, are, are grateful for it as well. Uh, this is a fantastic story, just an absolutely fantastic story, and I am really glad to have read it. And this same supporter, an extremely generous supporter, has commissioned us also to do two other Zelazny stories as well. Those are going to appear later this year over on Elder Sign, our weird fiction podcast. And if you're thinking, why are we doing Zelazny stories on Elder Sign, but this one on Gene Wolf Literary Podcast, it's because this story, Keys to December, has real connections with Tracking Song, which we've just finished uh, recording on the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. It seems that this story was a, a big inspiration, a big influence on Tracking Song, and we're going to be talking about some of those connections in the discussion. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll finish up the discussion episode, or at least that'll be the penultimate section of the discussion episode. We'll be uh, thinking about tracking song in terms of the the keys to December. There are certainly some questions that I didn't even think to ask about tracking song until having read the keys to December. So it'll be kind of a uh, I don't know an addendum uh, and uh, additions and emendations and corrections section to our uh, our tracking song discussion at the end. But that is uh, probably an hour and a half from now, and so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, let's get started at the beginning here. And uh, Brandon, it's your turn to do the recap. So take it away. Yeah, I mean, I just have to start by saying that I'm going to have to refrain from reading this whole story out loud. And <laughs> I'm going to do my best to do that. But there are, are three points in the story where where some lengthy passage reading is merited, I think. And the first is, unsurprisingly, the opening of the story. Uh, it drops us right into the world the it gives us a sense of world building and what's going on but it doesn't really give us any roadmaps to to meaning to figuring that stuff out so i'm just going to read the first paragraph so everybody can be kind of on the same page in in being thrown into the world of the keys to december zelazny writes this born of man and woman in accordance with cat form y7 requirements cold world class modified per alional 3.2-E GMI option. Jerry Dark was not suited for existence anywhere in the universe, which had guaranteed him a niche. This was either a blessing or a curse, depending on how you looked at it. So look at it however you would. Here is the story. 
Yeah, I love this little opening here. I mean, we just get the facts of the case. The The narrator then poses a philosophical question or, or at least you know, a philosophical perspective uh, for us, the readers, to ponder and then says, hey, here's a story that's going to illustrate exactly this. Uh, this really felt like the, the Twilight Zone to me, which had, had just gone off the air, right? That this, this felt like Rod Serling's introduction to each episode where we get a little teaser and then we get Rod Serling sort of appearing out of the shadows or spinning around in a chair or jumping out from behind a rock or whatever it is to address us, the audience, and tell us what's the point of the story that we're uh, about to encounter. And I absolutely loved it here. Yeah, it's great. And I'm really glad you brought up the Twilight Zone here because Rod Serling was kind of uh, maybe a notorious thief of science fiction stories of his day. Uh, and he got into some beef with some with some big writers who were either writing for the show or wrote stories that he didn't give credit for. And I have to wonder if you know, this was part of the culture of science fiction writing at the time. And Zelazny was maybe trying to get his story bought by The Outer Limits or The Twilight Zone or something like that in, in writing the story this way, opening with this style. Well, what we get next here is a an explanation of that first paragraph and you know, some personal incidentals about Jerry as well. We learned that Jerry was genetically modified in utero to take on this cat form in order to live comfortably in a very cold world, a very cold environment. And by world, I mean planet here. Uh, the you know galaxy has been populated by humans. And the result of this genetic modification was that he needed a temperature of at least negative 50 degrees Celsius in order to just feel comfortable. That's his normal resting temperature. And we learned that this came about because his parents consulted the local Planned Parenthood on options for genetic modification uh, and chose this particular cat form. I guess the inference here that we can make is that they chose it based on earning potential uh, for Jerry, but maybe also for themselves. It's a, it's a little unclear why, but Jerry was intended from birth to live and work for general mining. Unfortunately, the place that he was intended to go and be a miner at, the world Aliono, was destroyed by a Nova before he could get there. So he and other cat forms like him were left in a real lurch. Many parents who decided to have these cat form children, uh, you know, who the mining company, who the mining company ultimately owned on some level or, or indentured, who, who was breeding these indentured servants, I suppose, many of these parents couldn't afford to care for the children to the extent that they needed caring for because they were in the wrong environment. So, for instance, Jerry's parents could only afford a hermetically sealed temperature controlled room uh, from which he was barely able to leave. He could leave with like a refrigerated suit, uh, but that was costly to maintain. And there was a lot of other stuff that he needed, like medicine and methane gas in the room to breathe. And so he just wasn't suited for Earth. The mining company, who didn't have a use for any of these genetically modified people anymore, uh, still took care of their education and uh, other expenses because they were still contractually obliged to them. These contracts were signed before birth. In all, there were 28,566 cat form people like Jerry who were left without a purpose, a, a real raison d'etre in, in the true sense of that word. And now we're told about Jerry's physical appearance, what a cat form is. Jerry looked like a large gray ocelot, but without a tail. And Jerry has a special talent, you know, like any population of people, some 
of those are talented beyond what is expected of them, what their expected uses. And Jerry's talent was economics. And so he took some of his mining pension and invested it and grew and grew and grew the money. And so that's his real focus is economics. And because of Jerry's interest in economics, his next piece of business was to do something for all the cat form people like him. So he went about trying to collectivize all the assets of the cat forms like him. And we get this name, they're called the December Club, um, because he really did want to ensure a better life for all of them. And here in the story, we get a letter that Jerry wrote Sansa, who is his betrothed, and she's also the president of the December Club. In the letter, he tells her of his plans to grow the asset pool, you know, by smart investment, and hopefully to be able to execute some broader scheme on behalf of the club within the next five to 10 years. But Jerry's a really good investor, and so the assets he took and invested grew a lot faster than he expected. So Sansa lets him know via a letter, you know, that we're getting here, it's a letter that comes later, not a response to the first letter, that if they had a hundred world change units, they'd be able to get a new planet to their specifications, you know, and be able to be comfortable and live there and kind of prosper in the next five or 600 years. That's how long it would take to really terraform this planet to change it. Jerry was able to purchase a new planet within the next year with the asset pool uh, for all the cat form people. But the cost of purchasing 100 machines was way too much, uh, on top of purchasing a planet and the December club just didn't have the asset pool. So Jerry suggested that they buy fewer units. They buy 20 units and expand the time period of waiting from five or 600 years to 3000 years. So 3000 years is the time it's going to take for the December club to terraform a new home planet for themselves. And because this is, expanded the time frame so much and this is going to come up later this decision has to go to a vote to all of the cat forms and the cat form folks vote yes this is an amazing setup here for this story and of course already at this point it is clear why we are doing this immediately after tracking song uh, this is going to tell a similar story about terraforming a, a planet uh, also there are cat people, right? There are people who have been humans, maybe we should say, who have been genetically modified with animal DNA. This is something, of course, we've seen in Gene Wolfe before. And then in Tracking Song, we get the the reverse of that, right? So we could already see the connections and, and there will be more and we will tease them out uh, as we go here today in the recap and then uh, later this week in the discussion episode as well. There are a number of really fascinating, really interesting features in the early parts of this story and the, the setup here, the the really the introduction that we get to Jerry Dark's life. Uh, for one thing, it's clear here that the narrator of this story is not omniscient. Uh, whoever the narrator is, is, is making suppositions about Jerry's family's wealth, for example. Uh, the narrator says it is likely or it is unlikely, not I know this, or that just, just simple indicative statements about what is true, about what is happening. But then the narrator does present some information like that as factual. And and so to me, this reads like a biographer or a historian, you know, far in the future working from some type of evidence, maybe documentary evidence or, or narrative evidence, combination of that in order to construct the life of an interesting historical figure, but then also having to make suppositions about how the material that, that they have connects, right? How it all fits together. 
why people did the things that they did. Uh, This is going to fade into the background a little bit as we get into the heart of the story, but it's not going to ever disappear completely. And and this is going to be a real driving force, actually, of our discussion of how we uh, interpret this story, whether it's an optimistic story, whether it's a pessimistic story. So this will be kind of the backbone of our discussion. Yeah, the style certainly lends itself to some sort of scholarship, to some sort of scholar kind of reflecting back and writing this. And Zelazny does such a good job of world building here that you get that sense of, you know, deep time of this being a story that is maybe written after this 3000 years takes place. But at the same time, Zelazny's playing with these great tropes of, you know, the Galactic Civil Liberties Union or, whatever, you know, whatever it is, Planned Parenthood still exists and people go there to literally plan parenthood uh, to determine where their kids are going to work, how they're going to be made. They're really not planning parenthood, I guess, so much as as, a, as directing the life of uh, an unborn child in some way or, or a planned child. And I think it's really great how he's able to combine the familiar and the strange and give us this sense of, you know, deep time, but also uh, familiarity. I think it's really a wonderful touch. Yeah, this is one of these really fun history of the future things that that I always love to point out in science fiction writers. It's clear here that Zelazny, in this case, is not imagining the the future as being very much like the United States circa 1960, simply because that's the type of story he wants to tell, or because maybe he's lacking in imagination, which is uh, maybe uh, some charges that we could level at some other writers, but he is poking fun at this. And so, yeah, we get these uh, uh, some of these similar institutions, right? So the, the general mining is abbreviated GM, but it's you know, not General Motors, it's general mining, but we're supposed to be thinking about that. Yeah, Planned Parenthood, I mean, that's hilarious that it's basically, um, you said Planned child but you know it's like planned child labor basically right, right? so like doing the exact opposite of, of what planned parenthood is supposed to do uh and in fact then right he, as you say he brings in the civil liberties union here as well because uh they're looking into the question of whether or not this whole business with indentured servitude of children uh is a good idea <laughs> and moral and legal um as well but you know it's not the aclu because it's not american anymore it's the gclu because it's galactic and and all of this is tough in cheek, though we're going to talk about all of this in the discussion as well. But I just loved this opening. It, it, as you say, Brandon, it's it's kind of hitting you on both directions, saying this is a far future story, but also here's some bits that are are really familiar to to serve as an entry point into that world, which is a great way to invite people into your speculative setting. Well, at this point in the story, we get a description of the world that Jerry bought for the December Club, and I want to read the whole thing. Because it's just great prose, but it also shines a light on the style of the story as well, and the styles of Lasney's writing in. So I'm just going to read it. Here we go. Quick. A world in 300 words or less. Picture this. One landmass, really, containing three black and brackish-looking seas, gray plains and yellow plains, and skies the color of dry sand. Shallow forests with trees like mushrooms, which have been swabbed with iodine. No mountains, just hills, brown, yellow, white, lavender. Green birds with wings like parachutes, bills like sickles, feathers like oak leaves, an inside-out umbrella behind. Six very distant moons, like spots before the eyes in daytime, snowflakes at night, drops of blood at dusk and dawn. Grass like mustard in the moister valleys. 
Mists like white fire on windless mornings, albino serpents when the air is astir. Radiating chasms like fractures in frosted window panes. Hidden caverns like chains of dark bubbles. Seventeen known dangerous predators, ranging from one to six meters in length, excessively furred and fanged. Sudden hailstorms like hurled hammerheads from a clear sky. An ice cap like a blue beret at either flattened pole. Nervous bipeds a meter and a half in height, short on cerebrum, which wander the shallow forests and prey upon the giant caterpillar's larva, as well as the giant caterpillar, the green bird, the blind burrower, and the awful eating murk beast. Seventeen mighty rivers, clouds like pregnant purple cows, which quickly cross the land to lie in beyond the visible east. Stands of wind-blasted stones like frozen music. Nights like soot to obscure the lesser stars. Valleys which flow like the torso of women are instruments of music. Perpetual frost in places of shadow. Sounds in the morning like the cracking of ice, the trembling of tin, the snapping of steel strands. They knew they would turn it into heaven. Yeah, so that's the description of the world. I just think that this is a, a beautiful passage of prose. It's really written almost like a poem. I think you could break some of these uh, some of these places where Zelazny separates the thoughts via semicolon with a line break, and you would get this just poem of a beautiful new planet. Uh, and I love everything about this description. I, I just like it blew me away when I read it. I mean, it's one of the most beautiful land, landscape descriptions I've ever read. Oh, yeah. This is certainly jumped right into my top 10 list of favorite landscape descriptions in speculative fiction, which is, by the way, a real list that I keep. I pull it up from time to time to look at it. And I had to to add this to it. Uh, and, and really, it jumped almost all the way to the top. It is just amazing. I mean, I love the, the beauty of these words. It does seem also that it's it's really inspired by some of the writers that we cover over on Elder Sign. I mean, this has a, a real Clark Ashton Smith feel to it, even if the, the style of the presentation is, is, is quite different. There are also some technical features that I really admire about this, really love about this. And I think you're right to be thinking about it in poetical terms, Brandon. Uh, but for one, this is all a single sentence. I mean, there are a lot of semicolons, right? But it is all just one sentence. And in fact, the sentence doesn't end with a period. It ends with ellipses. So really, this sentence may actually still be going on, which is an effect that <laughs> I really like. We are actually going to see that play out here in the story, which is going to be really awesome. I do also quite like the authorial intrusion about the necessity for a short description here. Uh, and because, you know, I'm a bit of a weirdo, I actually checked and this is 251 words. So he came in <laughs> under the, the 300 word limit that I don't know, he'd been given by the publisher, by the editor or something like that. Uh, but then going back to the, the poetical language here too, there, there are some other features that are just awesome. Uh, the similes are fantastic. Probably my favorite is the wind blast stones like frozen music. This is just a gorgeous phrase, but it also really reminded me of those stones that, that you and I and, and our friend Liam climbed together at Dolly Sods in West Virginia several years ago. So this is a simile that evoked something for me. It's not just putting beautiful words adjacent to each other on the page, but it does really conjure up an image of something real and, and, and something vivid and uh, emotional as well. 
He's also using a ton of alliteration here, which of course really jumps out when I'm listening to you read it. And and maybe the 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 jumble of of alliterations that that stuck out to me most while you were reading that, Brandon, are just uh, these several words together in uh, really just a pair of lines. We get furred, fanged, hailstorms, hurled, hammerheads, blue beret, uh, all in just two lines there. And it just sounds amazing. It gives you this sense of, of rhythm, this sense of cadence, and it makes you pay attention to the words. And it just brings this landscape to to life. All of that is just phenomenal. I mean, this is really, this is probably the highlight of the story. It might be, I don't know, the highlight of my month, actually, this this passage here. Right. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's one of those passages where you read it and it almost doesn't convey any information because of how beautiful it is. I don't, I don't know if that happens to anybody else when they read something that's just so well written that you get lost in the language of it. But he is conveying a lot of information here and all of it kind of comes out to play that last bit about the sound of the steel strands snapping uh, comes back in a big way. The imagery here and the similes and, and the alliteration don't just awaken us to, to th- things we might remember about the real world. Like, I mean, that that hiking trip at Dolly Sods for sure. Um, but it also calls us back into the story when we see this stuff show up later. It's, it's a real uh, master trick that he's pulled off here. Well, right, because we know already that this is a story about terraforming. And so one of the things that this story is going to be doing, we don't quite know what else it's going to be doing yet. But one thing that we know it's going to be doing right now is showing us this planet changing. And this is an amazing setup here because he just says here in 251 words, here are all the features of the planet as as it exists when they get there. And this is going to allow him to recycle this language and uh, and then subtly change it as a way of showing us what is changing about the planet, just changing some of the adjectives. Uh, and and we'll, we'll take a look at that as we go. Yeah. And I do want to say, you know, with regards to poetry here also, we do get an allusion a little bit earlier on uh, where Sansa, who has a really kind of poetic soul, I'm not going to dig into what that means too much, but she loves poetry. Uh, she thinks a lot about the world and the meaning of the world in, in different ways, as we'll see, than Jerry and maybe some of the other uh, cat forms. She quotes uh, a passionate shepherd to his love by Christopher Marlowe uh, a little bit earlier on in this story. So the, he Zelazny's kind of built in an expectation for some poetic language and some poetic allusions here, and, and I think it's fantastic. So... The Catforms land on this world, and they set up the world change machines. Uh, They also create some habitats in the caverns, and they build some workstations, I suppose, where they can be put into cryogenic sleep and then go to the workstations and wake up for a three-month tour of duty every 250 years. And this means, for those of us that that are doing the math here, that the Catforms will be awake which really means they'll be aging uh, for only three years of the 3,000 years it will take for the world to change to their specifications. More importantly than all of this, though, is the fact that Jerry and Sansa now get to be together, you know, in the same room physically. And almost as soon as this is the case, you know, Sansa is thinking about the existential implications of the actions that the cat forms are taking. She's thinking... They won't be able to go back home. And if they are able to at the end of 3,000 years, if they're able to travel back home, nothing would be the same. But Jerry's not worried about this because, in his opinion, all they had back on Earth were their little hermetically sealed cells. And on this world, they'll be able to have a real home. And, and by home, I think 
we're meant to mean they'll be able to exercise dominion over this world. All right. Well, at this point, 250 years have passed, and Jerry and Sansa are standing their first watch together. They're stationed at one of the world change stations in the Deadlands. They pass their time by going outside and performing the tests they need to perform and maintaining the equipment. And outside, the air is still lethal. And this place is called the Deadlands for a reason, too, because all that exists outside the station are caves and rocks and sand. There are no trees. There's no other marks of life. But you can really see the world starting to change because the the weather patterns on this planet and maybe the whole ecology are, are fighting against the changes that the world changes are making. Jerry and Sansa can't spend a lot of time outside then. It's a very hostile environment. So they drag a couch in the station up to the third floor to their cats. After all, they love being <laughs> as high as they can. Uh, and, they, and they look out the window. They notice in the distance there's a rock shaped like a norm form, you know, an outcropping. And norm form here is a term for, I think, a normal human, a non-genetically modified human being. Uh, and they watch the weather and they watch the world change. They go down to the first floor. They move around the base. They make love. Sansa sings. Jerry writes. And Zelazny writes that they purred often, which is a sign of thinking, but also a sign of pleasure. But they never laughed because they didn't know how to laugh. One morning, as they're looking out the window, they see one of the bipedal creatures on the planet moving towards the station across the land, across the dead land, the desert. The creature's dying, and, and they want to go examine it. The bipedal creature is covered with a reddish down like a fur it has dark eyes it lacks a forehead and has four clawed fingers and toes you know on each of its hands and feet jerry and sansa decide whether or not to leave the creature outside or bring it inside because it's going to die either way in fact it's dead sansa wants to bring it in and jerry doesn't so they stand there and watch its life really just leave its body and they leave it out in the barren sands. This moment has a massive effect on Sansa. She begins to think about what it means that they are changing the ecology of the planet, what the impact of that is. How much damage will it do? How many life forms will it kill? Jerry doesn't think there's actually that much to worry about, though, with these types of questions. Certainly the questions are worth thinking about, but maybe there's not a real issue there. He's been doing some research on adaptation and believes, you know, to quote Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, life uh, finds a way. In fact, he's now glad that they brought fewer world change units because over 3,000 years, he thinks most of the life on the planet should be able to adapt, in his professional opinion as an economist, which is going to come up later. This is going to be thrown in our face a little bit. But Sansa is still really concerned. She thinks that forcing adaptation on the life of this planet is really the exact sort of thing that happened to them, that caused them to have their own quietly miserable existence. They're turning the creatures on this planet into misfits of their own habitat in the same way that the cat form people's parents turned them into misfits of 
Earth's environment um, because they were made for a different world. But Jerry tries to reassure Sansa here by pointing to the fact that trees are already adapting and they haven't made any more deserts. They haven't actually changed the landscape all that much. The truth is, he tells her, that something is always hurt by change. This revelation that Jerry makes to Sansa doesn't really speak to her. It doesn't really comfort her. And she falls into a depression. And so they watch the snow fall outside. And eventually, though it's not written here, uh, they return to their cryo sleep. Zelazny does a fantastic job here of not just making this story about how cool it would be to terraform a planet, which, which would be cool. I would read that story if that's all it was. Uh, and, and by the way, I should pause here because I keep using terraform, even though that is clearly not technically what's happening here because they're not trying to make it like Earth. In fact, they're trying to do the opposite. That's the whole point. Uh, they're really doing ecological engineering, I guess. But I'm going to keep using the word uh, terraforming here to mean render fit for habitation, uh, simply because I think that's what it has come to mean in science fiction. But anyway, Zelazny here is giving us two characters with very different attitudes about the changes that they are are making as they try to make this planet fit for them. Jerry is dead set on the goal, and he is completely resigned to the fact that some things are going to suffer in order to make this world suitable for for them, in order for them to get what they want. Some people, or, or, or some things anyway, some creatures, have to lose out. But Sansa has not resigned herself to this, and in fact, she seems surprised by it, as if she hadn't really considered this before they got here, before they put this plan in in motion. And really, now it seems like she's having second thoughts, and and this this attitude, this discovery, this revelation for her, this is going to drive the plot of the story, even while we are also getting some really great high-concept SF stuff about how the indigenous life forms are adapting to uh, what, from their perspective, amounts to climate change. Yeah, I mean, we really learned that the air isn't breathable for them, the weather isn't suitable for them, that this whole planet is really hostile for their well-being. And the air they breathe, it's not clear that it's really oxygen. They were not even able to live on Earth uh, outside of their chambers, which pumped in, you know, some methane gas. And this is because they were all designed to live and work in, in mines, on a kind of a barren and dead planet. So all of this is really in Sansa's mind, you know, what they were made for, uh, what type of environment they were supposed to live in, and whether or not anything was ever really meant to survive in that environment, and what the cost is of keeping them alive. It's all it's all pretty heavy stuff that's on Sansa's mind here. Yeah, and it is going to come back, because it turns out it's on Zelazny's mind as well. Right. Well, 250 years later, we discover pretty quickly that Jerry is alone. He's woken up alone. And this part of the story is really a journal entry. He writes in his journal to keep busy. And the thing that is driving him crazy is the sound of the machines. He cannot get them out of his head. They are constantly humming. And he is always looking for some meaning in the hum. He's looking for some signal in the noise. And sometimes he hears the voices of his parents. Sometimes he can almost make out other intelligible speech. But really, he just is thinking about his parents. He knows they're probably dead. 
And he thinks back to when he left, the fact that he couldn't even shake his father's hand without using the special gauntlet that was designed for his refrigeration suit. He couldn't kiss his mother goodbye. And I think at this point, he really regrets that. To keep busy, he also calls the other 19 stations, the other 19 role change stations every day. And he's concerned about becoming a nuisance talking to them since he's decided to be alone uh, during this three-month period. The world still hasn't changed enough to be safe to leave the caverns uh, without protective gear. But he does note that some adaptive changes have have happened to some of the life forms on this planet. The trees, for instance, have thicker barks. The caterpillars appear to have gotten larger, but that's only because they've become woolier in order to adapt to the cold. Some of the creatures have taken to hibernation, but there's been some odd occurrences as well. One of the stations has reported that the bipedal creatures have started to wear the skins of animals. And this is a sign of intelligence because it shows that they're able to build and use tools. They're planning for the future. They're concerned about survival in a way that is not rooted purely in instinct. They're adapting by becoming intelligent. And this is concerning because when the bio team surveyed the planet, there were no signs of intelligence life. And Zelazny throws in this this idea about a bio team here. And it's a great bit of world building because we can immediately infer what he means by it. That whenever somebody wants to buy a planet and terraform it, somebody has to go out and survey it and make sure there's no intelligent life that they're going to be destroying and that it's acceptable in some way to do whatever the world changer is trying to do. And I want to read that series of books for sure. Yeah. Yeah. The bio team survey expert is a, <laughs> another bu- a great bureaucratic science fiction novel with adventures thrown in. Yeah, it would be great. Well, Jerry's thoughts at this point move now to Sansa and we learn officially now that he has let her sleep through this watch. He did not want her to be further disturbed by by the devastation and catastrophe of watching the world change. But sometimes he does think she's with him. He hears her singing in the machine hum, apart from you know the parents' voices and the other unintelligible speech. He tells himself he's going to wake her next time so they can be together. And at first he says that this is because the world would be more settled, she won't be as anxious or depressed or upset by the changes, but really he admits to himself that this is only because he's too lonely to stand the three-month watch alone. It's too isolating and too noisy, and it's also too silent at the same time. The noise becomes a type of silence, and it's too much to be here in this station for three months without companionship. And at this point, he begins to wonder if he'll have a vision, if he'll become a mystic because of how much in, how much sense he's trying to make out of the chaos of the sound and the changing environment. He muses more on sound here, on the sounds and silence. And he says, I wonder, though, whether silence is not the true state of affairs in the universe. Are little noises serving only to accentuate it like a speck of black on a field of blue? It's snowing again outside. 
This is an absolutely gorgeous section here. I mean, it's so in- internal. We just really get at the interiority here of Jerry Dark as a character, uh, just musing on all of the things that are happening because of him, because of of choices that that he has made, things he's persuaded other people to do. Uh, but I'm really interested in this scene here, this this section of the story, because it is a journal entry. It's a, a first person account, and since I'm really interested in thinking about this story as an artifact that exists in the world of the story because of the the clues that we get regarding that at the beginning of the story, this really jumps out then as perhaps being one of the the documents that this future historian or future biographer, uh, scholar of some sort, I don't know, professional writer, whatever this person might be, but this is one of the documents that that person has some somehow is this journal entry. Yeah, I think that must be the case. And it's such a powerful entry. You get a real sense, as you said, Glenn, of Jerry's interiority. But it gives a sense of his thoughts, of the things he's struggling with, of what's going on. And because we have this journal entry kind of written down in this story, maybe for somebody to discover in the future, and and we also get all these instances where Jerry's writing all the time. It, it could be really plausible that somebody has discovered a lot of these journal entries, discovered Sansa's thoughts, discovered Jerry's uh, changing attitudes over time and was able to piece together this story, uh, this kind of morality tale of Jerry Dark. Though the reasons for it will have to leave uh, for speculation in the discussion. Well, Jerry wakes up again 500 years later. Sansa is smiling at him, and he's trying to explain as he's maybe <laughs> licking off the frozen condensation or whatever's on his fur here as he's still waking up. He's trying to explain to her why he let her sleep, and he apologizes. Now, Jerry doesn't know that it's been 500 years. He, th- he thinks he's only been asleep for 250 years. And Sansa's not upset with Jerry at this point, though she was 250 years ago when she let him sleep through the last waking cycle. And at this point, both admit that they're never going to do that again. The loneliness is just unbearable, and they're going to stay together always. So Jerry and Sansa get down to the business of manning the station here. They tour the land in their flyers. They recognize changes in the land. For instance, the rock that once looked like the norm form has been eroded and changed by the wind and the weather conditions so that it doesn't resemble humans from their own world anymore. I think this is a big loss for Sansa as well. The familiarity is really gone. On the fourth day of their watch, they find some animal tracks, which have been made by a large predator. And not far from their base, they find three giant caterpillars that have died. Uh, And they also find that there are footprints that lead to and from the scene of the death of these caterpillars. Uh, It's concerning. Sansa asks what it means. Jerry says he doesn't really know, but they should photograph it for the logs. Other stations have reported similar instances, and Sansa says she doesn't understand it. She just doesn't. Jerry, I think, does understand it, and he's because his response is, I don't want to understand. So instead of kind of digging into this conflict here and understanding what's going on, I think we're meant to understand that uh, these caterpillars are being hunted rather than just being scavenged on. Instead of really dealing with this, though, Sansa and Jerry just spend their time hanging out and making love and 
getting drunk. And this is a pretty cool detail that Zelazny <laughs> throws in the story here. He says, 200 years ago, a biochemist on his watch just avoided all of his duties of manning the station and made a type of booze that cat forms could get drunk off of. And he was punished for this and put back to sleep for the remainder of the 3,000 years. But his recipe for making this alcohol and other cocktail recipes have lived on. The cat forms had been adding recipes to this manual for drinking, and it soon becomes a big cocktail guide, and all the stations are sharing it. And Jerry and Sansa, of course, on their watch, have to add their own cocktail recipe. It's also the millennium. It's been a thousand years. And they make a drink called Snowflower Punch. Glenn, I think you're going to have to figure out how to make this cocktail. Um, they, fig- they they make Snowflower Punch. They share it with all the stations on the day of the millennium. And through drinking, Jari and Sansa discover laughter. So though they share this recipe for their cocktail, uh, they keep that laughter to themselves. And it's kind of really just a really beautiful moment that Zelazny is describing here. Um, And he also talks a little bit about how traditions get made. So at this point in the story, Zelazny is introducing the idea of how a culture among the cat forms is going to form on this planet. And this becomes a a kind of minor theme of the story. I love this scene as well. I mean, I I love this story. So I love every scene in it. But some of the things in this scene that really uh, appeal to me, I mean, first of all, the the cat form stuff, the, the, the this fact that these are cat people, all of that is really awesome here in the story. And it's really emphasized in this scene with the, the business with the laughter. But I also love that they, they purr. They've got green eyes. Uh, they're large gray ocelots without tails. I I love this fact. It's easy to lose sight of it because it's not in every description and because the story is being told from their perspective. But I love when Zelazny peppers in these details about how uh, these characters, human though they are, are so physiologically distinct from us and it's it's awesome but of course right the cocktail business is really what carries this scene <laughs> away uh for me most readers i guess we we look around for a character to identify with in a story and of course for me i know that if i were in this situation i would be this uh this distiller this rules breaking delinquent <laughs> distiller that's who i would end up being and i think that you're absolutely right we need to invent the uh the snowflower punch uh, i'm gonna get valerie my my co-host on lower decks where we actually invent cocktails most episodes uh see if she can uh, can help me out with this if we can uh, i don't know each of us maybe will invent a recipe for it and we can uh, submit that to the audience to see uh which of them they like better but i also really love this scene simply because the idea of sleeping for centuries and then waking up for a few months to see what things are changing this is a real fantasy of mine maybe it's a historian's interest in how things are going to turn out but i also do just like the sense of adventure that comes from being alone and, and watching over other people and the the machines uh the the lone custodian of a spaceship this is a genre of storytelling that i love a lot or you know lone custodian of a uh, haunted hotel in colorado that's a story i love a lot as well and i've always wanted a job like this though i think secretly i know that it's not going to go well if i uh, if i take one so i never have yeah I, f- I wonder why this kind of story this trope is really uh unique to writers who spend a lot of time alone in their own heads i think they all recognize on some level that the idea of being a lone custodian seems great, 
but they would go absolutely crazy if they were stuck with themselves for for too long without any other interaction i mean that this is of course the shining uh this has happened to these characters you always think it's a good idea until you can't leave and you can't meet the people you want to hang out with uh it's a, it's a great great story though and I love the pathos of this scene. And, and Zelazny's descriptive writing is just so powerful. He makes all of this feel so real, so suddenly, almost instantly familiar. Like we have been the caretakers of this place, even though we've really only encountered it here for, you know, one page of storytelling. This is a real gift, a, a real talent that, that fills me with envy. Yeah, it's amazing. It's just adding these small details that animate the world. And that that's a something I've learned over many years in uh, you know, writing and and learning how to write is that adding little incidental details like making cocktails it it animates the world so you don't just end up with kind of this two-dimensional flat image on a canvas. You're giving the characters incidental business that may not seem like it adds to the story or does anything that much, but one sentence of incidental business can animate a world in a way that just sticking to the plot and characters and stuff just can't. And it's it's a great less, uh, writing lesson. I think Graham Greene also does this uh, fantastically. Well, during this tour, the same tour, the Millennium Tour, Sansa reads in a report in a report that's been you know left behind that all of the green birds are dying. They have gone as far as they can in adapting to the changing weather and world, but they can't go any further, and soon they'll be extinct. This makes her feel really kind of scared and afraid or maybe ashamed of the way that they've been living, which is they're only awake for a few months every two and a half centuries, and they leave little bits of themselves behind, little journal entries and log entries and uh, small changes to the station, perhaps, for others to discover and the world is so different every time they wake up and she's beginning to feel as though everything is transient and transparent she's beginning to feel immaterial and jerry tells her that she's not immaterial she's real and that they are gods this is what it's like to be a god they are remaking the world and they're going to soon populate it with their own species and I don't know if this soothes Sansa, but certainly she's glad that Jerry's strong, that his vision remains so constant. But Jerry knows he's got to distract Sansa with something. So they go for a joyride on the power sled. And that's where this millennium section ends. 250 years later, they awake again. So now it's been 1250 years since they've arrived. Progress is being made. The outside world is breathable. They can leave these stations a little bit and walk around a little bit. The temperature is tolerable and it's not quite there. They can't live outside, but they can go outside. But there is trouble brewing in the outside world. They're discovering that the bipeds are coming at night and they're leaving dead animals for the cat forms, which is a very cat-like behavior. <laughs> the bipeds have discovered fire also. They wear clothing. And this means that they are no longer beasts. All of the cat forms seem to be concerned about whether or not they have precipitated this change. They've forced adaptation on these bipeds or whether the bipeds would have just adapted naturally at some point. Jerry feels like he needs to know for certain whether or not the bipeds have become an intelligent life form like humans. He 
wants to seek out a group of the creatures and see if they can communicate with one another, which is going to be a big indicator of intelligence for Jerry. This has been tried before, he discovers, but the results are always mixed. Sansa seems sure that the colder weather has forced these creatures to discover the use of fire, which means that they have precipitated the change in uh, adaptation and intelligence. And so for her, if they are gods, as Jerry once told her they were, they have a deeper obligation to these intelligent creatures, to these creatures with consciousness. So Jerry wants to go out. Sansa's got this crisis and they use their flyers to survey the dead land to look for some tracks of the bipeds and they find some. So they land the power sled so they can track them on the ground and follow the footprints in the snow. It does take them a long time, but eventually they come across a group of bipeds attempting to kill this large creature and the cat forms just for shorthand call this creature a bear because it's like a bear in some ways but it's also not like a bear in some ways this creature has blue fur and a hairless snout as elazany says like the business end of a pair of pliers and the bear is winning against this hunting party and jerry wants to help them out because he wants to communicate with the bipeds so he uses his laser gun to shoot at the bear and first he just clips it in the shoulder, but then he gets a clean shot and kills it. Thinking he's safe, he addresses the bipeds and says, I name you Red Forms or something along those lines. But he's immediately thrown off his feet by a second bear that he did not see. Jerry's laser pistol is out of reach, so he takes out his knife and he uses his cat speed to dodge some attacks and eventually buries the knife into the bear's throat. But this doesn't kill the bear and Jerry is struck once more and, and really just damaged. He's, he's on the ground. The red forms try to help with their really primitive weapons, but they're useless. They're like snow throwing ice balls at this thing. Then Jerry hears a thud and the bear falls lifeless on top of him. A little bit later, Jerry awakens and sees the red forms staring at him and, and they're staring at the bear but they're also looking at the broken sled, and this gets Jerry's mind going. This power sled is broken. So he, he gets up, and he goes over to the sled, and he finds that Sansa is dead inside of it. She has broken her neck by ramming the sled into the bear, killing the bear, and saving Jerry's life. Jerry says the first prayer he's ever said in his life. And he picks up her body and he carries it back to the flyers. Oof. Yeah, this scene was absolutely crushing. I mean, it has been clear for several pages that this story was going to be about the ethical crisis of discovering that you're destroying the ecosystem of beings who are sentient. You're destroying the ecosystem of people and you're going to drive them to extinction. That we saw coming, but I did not see the death of Sansa coming and it hit me really hard here. It is going to hit Jerry hard too. We're about to see a real change in him, but... I found myself just putting myself and, and Elizabeth and, and I guess our, our baby as well into this setting, thinking about trying to make a home for yourself and your, your family as well, only then to lose your family. 
And we're going to see how Jerry reacts to this. But before we get there, though, uh, I do want to point out a few particulars of this scene. I mean, first, the the bear thing is great. Uh, We can see some Gene Wolfe here, too, right? The bear that isn't really a bear, but let's go ahead and call it that. Uh, We've seen this in VRT. We'll see it again as well in many places in Wolfe. And uh, maybe, in fact, we've seen it. Uh, in Operation Ares as well. It was a little more like a a hyena that's not really a hyena there or something like that, but the same idea is at play. Also, though, this is one of the places where Zelazny recycles some of his description, which is, is such an interesting technique, but one of the things that he does is change up one or two keywords as a way of, of signaling the, the alteration of the, the landscape. And uh, there is also another awesome simile here. The, this one I really love is a shower of hailstones drumming upon the roof of their vehicle like a sudden visitation of demon dancers. Uh, I've never had a sudden visitation of demon dancers or even a non visitation of demon dancers uh, but it is nonetheless an amazing bit of of, of language the, the this is a simile that's just awesome yeah Zelazny is really adding uh, some metaphysical language and some metaphysical ideas into the story here he's talking about prayer he's bringing in this idea of demon dancers as part of that as if that's part of the cosmos we're aware of uh, for Jari and Sansa and w- w- what's really going on here is the full expression of Sansa's belief that she is willing to sacrifice herself so that other intelligent life forms can live, which has been hinted at. And it's startling because you don't expect it to be on display in this way. You think she's just having questions and second thoughts and she'll get over it. But here she shows, you know, by this act of selfless, uh, of self-sacrifice, her real commitment to her belief in, I don't know, the the dignity, the maybe divinity, the sanctity of lives outside of her own and, and the worthiness of making such a sacrifice to protect them. Um, and this is what she's been struggling with the whole story. And Zelazny does such a good job of just moving us through it and keeping us so on track with the plot that the bigger questions he's playing with really don't arise maybe until a second or third reading it's it's fantastic yeah and the whole thing just scales upward it just it's there's a real sense of i guess scaffolding here where he's constructing an edifice in this story where we're moving from act to act and the stakes are being raised but also the stakes are changing as we go and this death clearly this is an act break in the story and her death jerry's reaction to it is going to propel a real change in what the story is uh, about now i mean this is just masterful storytelling as well as masterful writing at the the sentence and paragraph level i mean this whole story here could just you know really be uh, a, a crash course in how to write a darn good story yeah well before jerry goes back to sleep he awakens the executives of the december club because he wants to know what to do and they tell him that there are no traditions regarding the death of one of their kind nothing's been established and he can pretty much do what he wants with sansa's body they also express their condolences in a kind of passing way So Jerry takes Sansa's body to a mountaintop in order to build a pyre. Uh, But before he can complete his task, he's pelted with heavy hail. He curses God. He says, God damn you. He curses the storm. And he ends up having to blast a hole in the mountain in order to place Sansa in there and, and build a pyre that's not being attacked by the weather. And then he gets back in his flyer and he fights the hailstorm. 
He shoots at the clouds until he's out of ammo. And he returns to his chamber to sleep then now at this point for another 250 years. And this strikes me as kind of incredible because Jerry knows what's causing the hailstorm. It's it's at the station. It's the world-changing units. But he's fighting the storm itself. He's really kind of entered into this mythical space about what's happening in the world after experiencing the death of Sansa. He prays. He curses God. He curses the storm as though the cat forms aren't, you know, directly or indirectly responsible for everything that's going on here. He needs something bigger to kind of hang his burden on uh, rather than his people. And I just think this is a great moment. This, this really stuck out to me in this moment of the story. This expression of grief as as rage is something that, uh, you know, unfortunately, we're all familiar with and, and is a, a feature of life. But it seems like this is the first time that Jerry has ever had to deal with this because he left home, left his family as a, as a young man. So even though his, his parents are dead, we, we know that already in the story, he didn't have to experience that. And it seems likely that this is the first death uh, of a loved one that he's had to, to experience in the way that this manifests when he's he's really alone in the world and alone in a world of his own making uh, as this rage at the very world itself uh, is a, a beautiful way of, of showing someone dealing with this and has all this this sense of of irony that you point out as well, Brandon. Again, just an awesome, beautiful scene. At this point in the story, Zelazny gives us a bit of a, a story break. He returns us to a description of the world, and I'm going to read that. Here's what he writes now. 15 centuries, almost half the weight, 200 words or less. Picture. 19 mighty rivers flowing, but the black seas rippling violet now. No shallow iodine-colored forests. Mighty shag-barked barrel trees instead, orange and lime, and black and tall across the land. Great ranges of mountains in the place of hills brown, yellow, white, lavender. Black corkscrews of smoke unwinding from smoldering cones. Flowers, whose roots explore the soil twenty meters beneath their mustard petals, unfolded amidst the blue frost and the stones. Blind burrowers burrowing deeper, awful eating murk beasts now showing formidable incisors and great rows of rigid molars. Giant caterpillars growing smaller, but looking larger because of their increasing coats. The contours of valleys, still like the torsos of women, flowing and rolling, or perhaps like instruments of music. Gone much wind-blasted stone, but ever the frost. Sounds in the morning as always, harsh, brittle, metallic. They were sure they were halfway to heaven. Picture that. So we get an update of, of the world here, and it's maybe a little more cynical than the first image we got. Yeah, sure, they're halfway to heaven. Picture that. It, it is oozing with more cynicism. I, I love the, the subtle ways that Zelazny shows the change by by altering up some of the, the descriptive words, even if the objects themselves are the same, uh, or replacing the objects but keeping the descriptive words, also changing up the numbers. It used to be 17 rivers, now it's 19. But also, yeah, the tone, right? Uh, the cynical tone here points to a real shift in where this story is going. 
going. And I, I guess I said two scenes ago was the act break, but I, I guess this is really the act break, and that's really signaled here. But again, this all really reads like poetry. And in fact, I like the way, Brandon, that you even just maybe consciously did this, but I, I was not aware that you were consciously choosing to do this, but you didn't say ridged. You said rigid, <laughs> you know, that oh, you yeah. emphasize that. <laughs> and in your reading, just, it just, you just, drawn to to do that it feels like poetry there's some wonderful alliteration here again blind burrowers burrowing which is also a bit of a tongue twister that's extremely <laughs> that hard took to say 16 takes to get <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right uh, and probably has popped a million times into the microphones as well so uh, you're welcome gentle listener um, but also i want to point out that here all of this is uh rather than being a single sentence with semicolons this is uh, almost a dozen sentences each of which begins with an ellipsis. And so this is kind of completing the ellipses that ended the single sentence that we got in that first description. So to take them as a piece uh, and seeing the features that are, are similar, the linguistic features that are similar, but then the linguistic features that are different, and then pairing that up with the tonal difference, it's just a masterful way to tell a story. You could just put those two sections together, give them to somebody, and treat that like it's a story all on its own. And, and in fact, maybe that's something Zelazny did. Maybe that's how it started. I don't know what his process was, but it's just awesome. Yeah. One thing I really love that Zelazny does between these two descriptions is in the first one, there's a really natural flowing meter that relies a lot on IMs. Uh, but this description rejects that. And so you kind of have a, a really different meter that's a lot harsher to to read, to say out loud. It's a lot of one syllables. It's very, uh, it is very rigid. It is very uh, marching in some ways. It's it's a great trick of meter and of uh, use of poetic tools to give us everything we've just talked about in the differences between these two descriptions. But now we're back to this world and the characters in it. Jerry awakens again, and he reads the logs covering the time that he has slept. He drinks and looks out the third floor window. I'd imagine if he weren't a cat, he'd be growing a kind of grief beard at this point <laughs> if he could. And he says to himself rather cryptically, we'll die. And then he sets out to find a camp of the red forms. And this takes him three days. And he scouts out the camp, and he... And he kind of reconnoiters the whole situation and he finds that there are 16 lean-tos and three campfires and a bunch of red forms living in this establishment really so he enters the camp and inside he sees an outline of a cat carved into a wooden block one red form tries to approach him and and he tries to speak to him jerry doesn't really understand what the red form is saying and he's just trying to take everything in and he's examining the red form now he sees now that the red form has thumbs and a forehead and he doesn't say anything the red form the red form offers some meat and fruit he puts it at jerry's feet jerry eats some of the meat and he packs the rest of the food away for himself for later then he sits at the fire and he tells the red forms that they're going to learn to talk to one another. This scene did not end the way that I thought it was when it started because Zelazny manipulates us uh, here when he shows us Jerry, who is grieving, uh, shows us Jerry drinking alone, then muttering, we'll die, and then going off to find the red forms. And so 
we can't do anything other than expect that he's out for vengeance, that he blames the red forms for Sansa's death and he's going to get vengeance on them. But that is not it at all. And this is a really great trick, but it is also a great bit of characterization. It's a, it's a great way of showing us the beginning of Jerry's change, really where he's going to take up the positions of Sansa here, start to see the world the way that she did. Right, exactly. And and this phrase, you know, will die, it could mean a number of things. It could mean that he's going to get revenge on the Red Forms if he's blaming them for Sansa's death. Uh, it could also mean, as I think we'll find out, that he's concerned that they're going to go extinct, that they won't be able to keep up with adaptation. And, and that's kind of where Jerry's mind is at, because six weeks later, he returns to the Deadland station and he awakens the executives of December once again and he fills them in on his report this report he's made that is insisting that the red forms are intelligent and, and regardless of their intelligence of their of their mental powers he really doesn't believe that they'll be able to adapt to many more changes or any more changes on the planet and they'd have 1500 years to adapt but it's not enough time the executives here don't care all that much they tell jerry he has no scientific evidence to suggest that the red forms won't adapt to survive and this is really a reversal here a dramatic reversal that's taking place because the executives are really now carrying jerry's old opinion that he tried to console Sansa with and tried to soothe her with as the world was changing. But Jerry has a plan. He's not just ruminating or in the midst of a, a crisis, of an existential crisis of a sort. His plan is that they slow down the world-changing machines in order to give the Red Forms more time to adapt. To adapt. He wants to stretch out the timeline from 3,000 years or 1,500 remaining years to seven or 8,000 years. The executives just reject his suggestion out of hand. It's too much to ask of the cat forms who are already giving up three years of their life to stand watch. And we don't really know what the life expectancy is for these creatures. And, and, and so rather than giving up three years of their life, Jerry's now asking them to give up six or seven years of their life. And Jerry says that's, that's not too costly considering that making this decision would save an intelligent species. It doesn't mean their extinction, which would almost certainly happen. But the executives just don't care enough. Jerry suggested that they should wake everyone up like they did at the beginning of the story to put everything to a vote, to put the 3,000 years to a vote like they did at the beginning of the story, now doubling the timeline. But he has no support among the executives here. And anyway, he's just a treasurer. He's just an economist. His expertise does not extend to biology or ecology. And he just doesn't have anything to say, basically. So he's defeated. And at this point, he gives them a warning, a kind of <laughs> Shakespearean or biblical warning here. He says, we will be our own serpents when we come into our Eden. And after saying that, he returns to to the Deadland station to finish his tour. Though the executive though the executives think it would maybe be better if he were just to be put to sleep and they could send a replacement out to the Deadlands, but he wants to finish his tour. 
Yeah, we just get really this one political scene in in the whole story, and it, it's absolutely crushing. I mean, he can't even get past the first hurdle in the the bureaucratic machinery of this little political community that they've created. He can't even get someone to second his motion to uh, to to send this to be voted on by all the enfranchised members of the political community, which seems like you should get to that step, right? That this is a, a matter worth uh, going into that second step here, but he just can't get anyone to do it and and of course hearing you present the options here the the three years and you get your your magical world or six years and you get your magical world and thinking six years is just that's just too many years to give up for something like that i mean six years is what we ask people to give up for free college by joining the military right, right. and that's fairly small scale compared to uh, what what is at stake here and jerry really is just shouting into the wind here about a matter of life and death for an entire species but also something that is a matter of the souls of his own people and it's just all falling on deaf ears and i think that this scene probably resonates with us more now than it did 50 years ago when the story was written or 60 years ago when it was written, because this is basically our climate change response in a a microcosm that you're just shouting into the wind. It's a really bleak picture. This was a this was a scene that kept me up at night. Yeah, I mean, we're really looking at the difference between uh, the entitlements of dominion and the entitlements of and the responsibilities of stewardship. And that's basically what the whole climate change conversation comes down to in our current time that Zelazny has put on the page here for us, you know, uh, 40 years ago. Well, two weeks later, this is still the same waking period. Another station tries to get in touch with the Deadland station, but they get no response. Jerry's gone dark. Jerry, Jerry Dark has gone dark here. Uh, <laughs> they they investigate, the, the people from the other station investigate and discover that Deadland has been destroyed and Jerry Dark is nowhere to be found. And remember, these stations are where the world change units are. The the standing watch responsibilities is maintaining the machines and investigating changes in the world. So Jerry's destroyed one of these world change machines, uh, one of the 20. Later that afternoon, installation eight was destroyed. And so that's maybe two machines down. And its tenants were found walking several miles away. They told the investigators here how Jerry forced them out of the station and burnt it to the ground using the weapons on his flyer. As the cat forms from Installation 8 are reporting their story, Installation 6 went dark and communications went out to the remaining installations, which are remain, continuous radio contact, arrest any visitor on site. Jerry is now kind of in hiding and he's drinking he's parked his flyer at the bottom of a chasm and he's waiting for a communication from the executives to reach out to him and it does come he is being instructed to return to the main cavern and they're telling him on this communication that they are agreeing to his conditions to hold a vote to extend the process of world changing Jerry arrives at the main cavern and stepped out of his flyer. He was met by a firing squad, basically. All these cat forms are aiming their rifles at him. They told him to disarm himself. He said he's not holding any weapons. His flyer doesn't have any weapons. Jan Turrell, the executive, the head president maybe of, of the keys of the December Club, told Jerry that Jerry, you're a prisoner now. 
and you're going to be put back to sleep until the end of the 3,000 years, which is going to be another 1,500 years. But Jerry refuses. He says, I'm not your prisoner. You're my prisoner. I'm holding a dead man's trigger. And if you try to take me by force, I'm going to blow up my flyer and everyone at the main cavern with it. Furthermore, he says he's given his laser guns from the flyer to the red forms. And they're at the other two installations. And if he doesn't return to them by dawn, they're going to blow them both up. Jan here is at his wits end. He asks jerry why he's done this and jerry feels that he can't communicate a reason to them not an intelligible reason that they will understand because they don't have any feelings toward these red forms they don't feel the sense of obligation that he does so he tries an explanation that they will understand he is the red forms god his form is carved to every camp He is the slayer of bears from the desert of the dead. His story has been told for 250 years. So these red forms really have a culture around worshiping Jerry. He feels then that he owes the red form some consideration. He tells Jan to awake the other cat forms and hold the vote as he promised. If Jerry loses, he tells Jan he'll retire and Jan can be the god of the red forms. The story shifts here to Jerry not returning to cryosleep. He has decided to live out the rest of his life in exile, alone, standing watch at a new Deadland station until he dies. But rather than the sound of the machines as his only companion, he has the red forms coming to him, singing songs and bringing him offerings. He smiles upon them and sometimes cough, but says nothing otherwise and that's the story of jerry whether it was a blessing or a curse is up to us it's up to you the listener to determine the final line of the story is this thus does life repay those who would serve her fully and that's the end of the story now, what a chilling end of the story. Uh, there is here in between the the ultimate scene and the penultimate scene, there is this jump where we don't see what happens. We don't get the results of putting this to the, the vote of the entire political community of cat forms. And the question of what happens, do they agree with Jerry? Do they not agree with Jerry? The question of what happens there is going to frame our discussion. So we will uh, uh, we'll stay tight-lipped. We'll keep our lips sealed here on what we think actually happened there until we get to the discussion episode. Uh, but it's a, a masterful bit of, of storytelling to, to create some ambiguity here at the end so that we have to really even think about what the the point of this story is. But one thing that I think is the point of the story, or at least an impetus for the story as Elasny has told it, is that in the, the midst of, or maybe really coming to the tail end of the the ancient aliens craze, the idea that there were you know, <laughs> aliens uh, in antiquity that uh, taught us how to do all the things that we know how to do and built the pyramids and so on, and that we remember these aliens as our ancient gods, whether that's uh, the Judeo-Christian Islamic gods or the Greek gods or whatever. Uh, Zelazny has taken a cue from that and has flipped that story around and told us that story from the perspective of what if humans were the ancient alien gods to some other people as they were going through evolution. Uh, You know, I mean, it's the exact plot of Battlestar Galactica as well, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And of the alien movies, it turns out after after all this time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Zelazny's doing a lot of this story and I can't wait to get into all of it in our uh, discussion episode. Uh, But 
we're going to have to wait to get there. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. So we will be back in just a few days with a discussion of the Keys to December. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.